Welcome to the One City Church Podcast. Our mission is to help people draw closer to God by practicing the way of Jesus. We hope that your time with us blesses you and that you're able to see the invitations of Jesus to experience the love that he has for you. In the first three centuries of the church, followers of Jesus lived the life that was very different from the life that we live today. To be a follower of Jesus meant to live a life of actually an outsider. A life that was actually marked by death. What, what the Christian movement posed was a threat to the norm of life that existed for both um, the religious and the non-religious at the time. This movement that Jesus started began to have actually a negative effect on the economy. The Christian commitment to honor Jesus as Lord led people to let go of temple worship, um, which led to the loss of revenue among those who sold sacrificial animals and temple merchandise at the time. Christianity began to pose a threat not only to pagan rituals, but to the economic structures that existed. Because this was a new movement, followers of Jesus began to be kind of seen as a political club because it began to attract all sorts of people. Christians proclaimed a new message, but what was key about this message was not what they were saying, was that they demonstrated it by the way that they lived. Followers of Jesus cared for the sick. They welcomed people into their homes. They buried the dead, and they were generous with one another. They moved out into the streets to care for widows, orphans, the marginalized, and the outcasts. Followers of Jesus in the early church were even accused of being cannibals. They had heard about this eating of the body and drinking of the blood, what we refer to now as communion or the Lord's Supper, but they didn't know what the sacrament meant because they were on the outside looking in. But these accusations had one purpose, was to create confusion, to try to taint but ultimately to destroy this movement that was, um, that was happening. Christianity became a threat in so many levels to the normal way of life. So leaders in the Roman Empire, one in particular named Pliny the Younger, he was a governor of Pontus and Bithya, which today is located in like north central um, Turkey. He actually began to question people and use methods that were torturing for those who were captured and question. His main tactic was to have these believers denounce their faith and make offerings and sacrifices to pagan statues. Some people, because of the pain, they gave in, but majority actually did not, which actually infuriated him. So in Rome, in the Roman Empire, you, see, you saw a lot of stadiums like we do today. And they actually served a very similar purpose for entertainment. But for the early church members, if arrested and captured, they served as the entertainers in these arenas. But unlike today, the entertainment wasn't one, but unlike today, the entertainment then was one that was cruel, brutal, and bloody. Gladiators fought to the death, wild beasts mauled slaves, and the casualties were these prisoners and enemies of the Roman Empire. Followers of Jesus met their death in these arenas. 
The death of a follower of Jesus was a public event that not only satisfied the thirst for blood, but it also provided entertainment for the citizens that attended these events. But also it was meant to be a sign for those that were taking part in, in, in this movement of Jesus to instill fear in them. Ironically, these executions had the opposite effect. Instead of instilling fear in the early believers, it actually encouraged them all the more. People just couldn't understand why people would die for Jesus and why they would continue to worship Him and seek after Him and claim Him to be their Lord and Savior. The word witness in the Greek is, I mean, I'm going to say it in Spanish because Spanish is my second language, is <laughs> martiria, which is a root word for martyr in English. Witness and to die for Jesus in the early church became synonymous. Because to be a witness for Christ oftentimes led to death, which actually furthered the witnessing out into the world. The way that I sum up these early followers of Jesus is they were disruptive. And the example that they serve for us today is that following Jesus is disruptive to the ways and the norms of the world. Listen to the words of James to encourage us to follow after Jesus. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, that whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking anything. James's words capture the heart of the early followers of Jesus. That people's love and devotion in following Jesus went as far as to giving themselves and their lives, not just to Jesus, but towards each other. For us today, at least here in America, persecution that demands dying in order to follow Jesus is something that's very, very, very foreign to us. The demand to follow Jesus has actually lost a bit of its impact over the centuries. Modernization of our world conforms us to materialism, to live a life of comfort, among other things. But what's important is that this way of life, of conforming, makes us forget that following Jesus has a cost. There is a cost to following Jesus. The dangers of this lifestyle, if we go unaware of the cost that, uh, of what it takes and the cost to follow Jesus, is that, is that it just lulls us into a lifestyle of partial devotion to Jesus. We slowly become consumers of everything, including Jesus. And sometimes we hesitate or we struggle, or even worse, we grow unaware of this partial devotion that exists within us to Jesus. Now, if you've been attending church long enough, you might be able to relate to this. We live our lives at 100 miles an hour, no different than those who are non-believers. We fill our days with our work, but because we're Christian, we, do, we go the extra mile. We fill our, continue to fill our days with Christian activities like Bible studies, serving at our churches, attending churches every, every Sunday or every Saturday, reading of our Bibles, etc. Not that these things are wrong, 
But yet, if you really stop and think about it, there's something missing. The transformation that we read about, the transformation that we hear about, that we see in others, feels elusive to most of us. I think it's safe to say that what's universal for every single human being, whether you're a believer or not, is that when a trial hits us, when a challenging season comes our way, when something goes unplanned, an unseen circumstance shakes us to the very core. When these things happen, they rock us at, at a soul level. And the formation that already exists in our hearts is what rises to the surface and our response comes from that. Most of us naturally lean in to try to regain control of what's taking place in our lives. And if something like an illness or something that's just an unanswered prayer, something that we just can't control, we lean in and to try to control something else just to give us a sense that we're in control of something. So if you're like me, we might lean in and add more stuff to an already busy and hurried life. Or you might begin to think, at least I do, that maybe God is not blessing me because I stopped doing this religious activity. Or maybe God isn't near because there's a certain sin in my life. But silently, we grow weary, numb, frustrated, and we just keep striving, we keep trying, we keep, but at the end of the day, we keep coming up empty. We live hurried lives as believers of Jesus, full of anxiety, worry, depression, but what's even worse, isolation. We come to church and are surrounded by many people, yet we are disconnected because we can live a life externally on a very superficial and shallow level, not realizing that this can, go also, that this can also be a reflection of something that's happening internally inside of us. So we dismiss the idea, sometimes at an unconscious level, that Jesus can be close. That Jesus can actually speak to you. That he can actually speak to me. That he can use you. That he can use me. That he can change me. So we default to the norm and just try to modify our behavior. And we move to change and try something new. Could it be a new church? Because we think a new environment is what's missing. Or we might just simply walk away from the faith. But the good news is that this closeness that we desire at a soul level with Jesus is not impossible. That he's actually continuously pursuing you and me. That he wants to speak to us. He wants us to live with him in close, in close proximity. This life is attainable and accessible. And there's a word for this. It's called the gospel. Listen to Jesus' invitation and how do we attain this closeness with God, this union with him? He says, if anyone wants to come behind me, 
That person must turn away from oneself and take up one's cross and live a life following me. Because whoever wants to save one's life will ruin it. But whoever throws one's life away out of devotion to me will actually save it. Because what good will it do a person to have won the whole world but have lost one's life? I mean, what kind of a bargain can you strike to get back one's life? You see, the Son of Man is just about to come into the glory of the Father with His angels. And at that time, He will award every single individual according to his or her behavior. Amen, I tell you. There are some people standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming with His kingdom. So what does Jesus mean? What does Jesus mean when he says, whoever wants to save his life will ruin it, but whoever throws away out of devotion to me will save it? Let's take a closer look right here at what Jesus is doing here. One, let's notice that the people that Jesus is talking to in this passage of scripture are his disciples. People that already were following him. People who at this point have heard his teachings, the Sermon on the Mount have seen miracles take place. These followers were the first people who let go of everything and chose to follow him. Jesus is initiating uh, something with this group of men, his closest friends. He's not inviting them to a destination, but he's inviting them into something deeper. He starts by saying, if anyone wants to come behind me, the disciples of Jesus have had their interpretation of what following Jesus looked like. Yes, they left things behind externally. Physically, they were following him. But internally, at the heart, at the soul level, was a whole different matter. This is where their discipleship was compromised. Jesus, although he was talking to the group collectively, what he was actually doing, he was inviting them individually. Jesus himself had already made the decision to do as the Father had asked of him. And he knew that his obedience would come at a great price. And that price would be his life. Matthew 16, 21, Jesus says, From then on, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that it was absolutely necessary for him to go away to Jerusalem, to suffer deeply at the hands of the lay leaders, the senior pastors, and the Bible teachers that he must go on and be executed, but on the third day, he would be raised. When Jesus asked his disciples to come behind him, it was an invitation to something deeper and far more intimate. In the following verse, verse 22, Jesus, um, Peter had told Jesus, this will never happen to you. Everything you just said is not possible. It's not going to happen. I won't let it. Peter was demonstrating by that simple uh, statement that he got ahead of him. He was getting ahead of Jesus. But this serves as a reminder for all of us that we have those tendencies. We can get ahead of Jesus from time to time because we can place our plans, our agendas in front of Jesus. We begin to bargain. We begin to negotiate with Jesus of what following him should look like. I'm not sure about you, but I find myself negotiating with Jesus a lot. 
And my talk goes like this. Jesus, if you show up for me like this, or give me this, or give me that, or allow me to do this, then I will fill in the blank. Or simply, I see my life and I worry. I worry about what I don't have. Allowing that to build resentment and anger towards those who I think are undeserving of what they have. Or I begin to plead with God and say, haven't I given you enough? Ultimately, that self-talk, that inner monologue, what I'm doing is I'm placing a limit on the suffering that I think is just for me. But notice what Jesus does. After, his, after this, his exchange with Peter, he leans in and actually turns up the heel, metaphorically. He leans in and says this backward statement. The contemporary translation says it like this, if you want to save your life, you will destroy it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. Jesus was aiming at the life that the disciples had built for themselves. That's what he was shining the light on. Even though they were close to Jesus, their understanding of what Jesus would be like did not match the reality of the Messiah that was in front of them. Peter spoke out against the suffering that Jesus said that would need to take place. He said, no, Lord, you're not going to go through that. Judas, one of the twelve, held on to the money that was given to the ministry of the disciples because the Messiah, in his mind, was going to bring the Jewish people out of poverty and out of oppression. The religious leaders at the time couldn't see Jesus' servant leadership as the Messiah because his inclusion of those who were pushed aside, those who were marginalized, was not what the Messiah was going to come here to do. The Messiah in their mind was going to walk in as a conquering warrior and a conquering hero. Frederick Bruner in his commentary says that Jesus' words mean to turn away even from your best and highest religious ideas. Going back to the example of Peter, in verse 23, Jesus rebukes Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. I don't know about you. I've been called Satan a few times and it doesn't feel good. <laughs> I won't tell you by who, but it didn't feel good. But look at what Jesus follows up and says. He says, because you are not concerned with the concerns of God, but by the concerns of human beings. What Jesus is doing is almost kind of like setting the bar of what following him um, is going to cost. Following him will require us to ultimately surrender ourselves and submit to the lordship of Jesus, submitting to his guidance as well as his direction for us not to get ahead of ourselves, for us not to get ahead of him and cement our ideas of what following Jesus looks like, even if they're religious, but to let Jesus define for us what the path actually looks like to follow him and what the cost is. Bruner, again, explains that self-denial is not so much about giving up chocolates at Lent as it is giving up on, on ourselves as lords. It is a decision to let another lord rule one's life.
In other words, to allow Jesus to fully rule our lives. And Jesus is extending this invitation to follow him. And he sheds light on the challenges that you and I are going to face. Of, of the path that we tend to create. Because as humans, we cower away from suffering. We cower away from pain. But I love Jesus' encouragement. He says, hey, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus' invitation is not into a life where he serves as the starting point and God is the end. What he's inviting us to is a way of life that is done with him. Following his lead. And I think this is important. He's not pointing out the way. He's leading it right in front of us, meaning he's walking it. He's asking no more of us than he's willing to go through himself. And this is what makes Jesus so special. This is what makes him unique. And that is that what ultimately this version of him, that he wants to do life, that he's gone ahead of us, ultimately shatters any version, any expectation, any point of view that we may have created of him. Our self oftentimes creates a limitation in our ability to follow Jesus. The ceiling that we sometimes hit as believers in our walk with Jesus are oftentimes created by us. And we can't see that. And that is what the Christian journey is all about. But allowing Jesus to lead the way. Learning to let go of these ideals, our attachments, things that make us feel good, or most importantly, make us feel like we're good Christians. And learn to trust in the guidance of Jesus and the path that he is leading for us. The church has always been at the heartbeat of Jesus Christ. He turned to Peter and he said, On this rock I will build my church. This came after Peter had denied Jesus three times. Peter came to terms with his brokenness and his need for Jesus. He came to let go of this idea of what following Jesus looked like and accepted the invitation to something deeper and more intimate. It is in this humility that the foundation of the church lies. But also, humility is the foundation for transformation in our lives. So what does this mean for our church, for One City Church? What the church should look like and how it should function has always been a work in progress. Mainly because we as humans are flawed and we can be thick-headed and become stuck to our ways of thinking. That it has to be expressed this way, that it needs to look this way, that our programs need to be run this way. As I've been praying for months, because we started this church five months ago, I haven't really had like a vision series and saying like, hey, this is who we are, like this is where we're going. I've actually been praying and just reading and meditating. And, and, and out of that, I, I kind of saw this image. I see that in the beginning, the early church and followers of Jesus started out as a very small urban movement. In a few centuries that came after, they became the majority and the Roman Empire embraced them. After this, the church began to veer from its original design 
and then a few men called the Desert Fathers, men of wealth and political power, left their positions in order to seek closeness with God and began a movement that allowed people to become fully devoted to Jesus without the limitations of an institutionalized church body. Shortly, monasteries became a way for people to experience and regain what they had been desiring. Freedom to love and devote themselves to God without restrictions or limitations from the church. Cities began to build around monasteries and these places of encountering Jesus now became the focal point of spirituality. With the fall of the Roman Empire, the church was now a place of power and influence, both political and spiritual. The church began to use its influence and gain wealth, and unfortunately, it hurt many people along the way, asking for money, for indulgences, in return of forgiveness of sins and the salvation for, for people's deceased loved ones. And then a new wave of people began to speak up and lead this reform of the church to try and get it back to its original state, which is for people to, to live a life that's fully devoted to Jesus. From this movement, we had all different sorts of denominations and expressions um, that we see in various different um, worship styles and services. And what we see today we're seeing a, a, a big growth of this megachurch movement. But a megachurch actually, is actually an anomaly that has now turned into the norm. You ask any church planter, our goal is to reach thousands and thousands of people. Size, experience, preacher skill set, kids programs, salvations, baptism, weekly programs are what define church services as good. Depending on who you ask, people have become very complacent with what's going on because it's all around, especially here in Southern California. But out of my 10 years of pastoring, out of all the conversations I've had with people, I noticed something, that there is a deep restlessness that stirs in the hearts of people that are searching and seeking for a deeper experience with God. There is a hunger out there. People are desiring a deepness and a closeness with God, and they just don't know how to attain it. They're burning themselves out by filling their schedule, an already busy schedule. What's next? I think what's next is a revival. And I love John Thompson, the way he defines it. He's a pastor over in Toronto. He says that a revival is a unique spiritual experience that can descend upon a local church and sometimes impact an entire region, which we call a revival. Revivals are moments when God sovereignly chooses to break into our common faithfulness and curate a healthy spiritual upheaval. I think in Southern California, I think in church out in the West, we are desperate for a revival. What I, in my limited understanding, what I see the Spirit of God doing is calling 
us to be a community, a family that is fighting to be people that are fully devoted to Jesus. I see that Jesus is always extending an invitation for us to just simply take it back to the basics and just be devoted followers of Jesus. That we become people embracing the invitation that Jesus is continuously laying out for us just to simply follow him. Where we become people that God, that we become people that God, the people that God intended us to be, people of love. And through the transformation, like the people in the early church, that we become disruptive where we live because of the way that we live. I want to repeat that again. That we become people that are disruptive where we live because of the way that we are living. Jesus' words in John 13, he says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. For this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Loving your neighbor is disruptive. That is so hard to do. Why? Because I'm not joking. I love my wife, but there are some days that are make it impossible for me to love that beautiful woman. I imagine a complete stranger. But that is the mark of a disciple. That is the mark of a follower of Jesus. We become lovers of all. And most importantly, we move at a slower pace. This is how our church family will be known, not because of what we do inside of these walls, but for what the Spirit of God is going to do outside of these walls through us. The fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are not things to be attained. Rather, they are gifts that are received by our Father through the work that He is doing in our lives. The fruits of the Spirit are not external, although they are experienced externally, but the fruits of the Spirit are internal. It's the transformation that takes place in our hearts. So as a church, as one city church, our focus will be on equipping and building up our people to embrace their spiritual journey. We are here to help shine the light on the way that Jesus has laid out for us. This is what it means to practice the way of Jesus. We will be walking through the Gospels, seeing the path that Jesus is asking for us to follow, using spiritual disciplines as a means to an end. A spiritual discipline or a spiritual practice is ultimately there to help us learn how to live in the presence of God where we as people are a witness to the world by the suffering that we endure. Where we endure it not because it's a duty, but more because it's a privilege that we get to suffer like Christ suffers. Because Jesus is more than enough. We are disruptive in the way that we face trials and challenges in our lives because people see Jesus in our suffering. Our community will be known for the way that we open up our homes and our homes become safe haven for our loved ones and our neighbors. Where our homes become refugees for those who are hurting 
and are in need of a loving and safe place. We become people who are sharing a meal together and experiencing the love of Jesus through a meal at a dining room table. We become disruptive in our neighborhoods because of our radical hospitality. The family model is one that's being lost and abandoned today. As people, as a community, we are missing the mark of what it means to be a family. We forget how important the family nucleus is to the formation of our lives. I feel like we need to recapture that. And that comes from being present with our families and our loved ones. But we receive the gift of presence from Jesus. When we embrace the path where Jesus leads us individually, it naturally affects those around us because they are immediately affected by the formation that's taking place inside of our lives. We become disruptive as we fight for our families. Our church family will be known for being a, a people who don't just pray, but we are people of prayer. We become disruptive in every moment of everyday life because we become people who are living in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the here and now, with the Father in union through prayer. The next revival won't take place in a church building, but in the church body, outside of these walls. We can lean in and learn to trust in the guidance of the Holy Spirit. If we're able to do so, we will be disruptive because we will be open to the Spirit of God leading us to reach those who have been marginalized, those who have been cast outside, those who have forgotten, and ultimately helping them draw closer to the Father. What we're doing is we're fulfilling the Great Commission. Jesus says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always until the very end of the age. The Great Commission at its core is love. Loving your neighbor is what this is all about. Life without God, without Jesus, is empty and lonesome. But in order for us to fulfill it, we need to start moving towards our neighbor. We need to get out of the thinking that we need to always be bringing people inside to these doors. We need to be the ones that are constantly going out. We need to be out in the field and be aware that people are lost all around us in search of the one that we have in our lives, Jesus Christ. Dallas Willard once said, discipleship is for the sake of the world, not for the sake of the church. And this is what we're going to go do. We need to embrace our spiritual journeys to be transformed and, lead, and allow that to lead um, that leads us to live a life that's full of power that comes from the presence of God in our lives and to allow the Spirit of God to flow out of us and work, reach and touch those who are in desperate need of Him because that's what Jesus modeled. Jesus' miracles, Jesus' ability to teach came from the Holy Spirit that flowed from Him. As a church, we want to help you along your individual spiritual journey we have dreams to create retreats for people to explore and experience God in a deeper way. 
to help guide you on your spiritual journey. We want to offer up the ministry of spiritual direction to guide you and point out the invitations that Jesus has for you to encounter him. This is different than pastoral counseling. Pastoral counseling says, I have to give you something to do. Spiritual direction points you to Jesus. Points out the invitations that Jesus is inviting you to individually. The reason why I love that is because God gets the glory for your transformation. I don't. We want to create equipped and ordained lay spiritual directors to learn and discover your spiritual giftings and fulfill what God has called you to be through those giftings. The spiritual journey is not meant to be done alone. On the other side of the coin is community. This is what I'm planning, um, me personally, I'm planning to give the rest of my life for. Not because I am all-knowing, not because I'm old, but because I'm right there with you. And by old, I mean experience. But because I'm right there with you. Fighting every day for my own life to be in union and communion with Jesus. For those of you who are generous enough to, to come hang out with me and, and allow me to speak, I just kind of want to lay this out. If you're ready to accept the invitation that Jesus has for you to deepen and have a more intimate relationship with him, are you ready for that? It doesn't matter which church you call home. That invitation is for everyone. I think Jesus is asking, do you want to be a part of this journey with us? Where we see where the Spirit of God is leading us. Sure, a short story. I had the next six months planned out. I knew what we were teaching. I knew what we were going to talk about. I knew when we were going to roll things out. And I had a friend, a mentor of mine, tell me, Lalo, I was like, hey, bro, what do you think? And he's like, he hit me with the question that I was just like, man, like, of course you would do that. He said, where is the Spirit of God <laughs> leading you? And automatically I said, he's leading me there. Then when I went home by myself and I really meditated, I'm like, those are my plans. Those are my plans. Where the Spirit of God is leading me is somewhere else. And I felt God telling me, will you trust me? That is one of the most difficult questions I have to answer every single day. I wish I could tell you what the next six months, next six years are going to look like. I don't know. I'm really excited to find out. Right now, God's, maybe it's because I'm, I'm I don't know, but he's only given me a week or two in advance. All I can tell you is that I'm really excited that starting next week, we're going to come, we're going to partner with um, St. John and, and, and bless some animals and, and, and be a part of their congregation and their service. But for, for one city church, God is leading us to start teaching and talking about prayer. That's all I know. That's the type of church we're going to be. It's not because we're not prepared, we're not ready, we're doing things off the cuff. No, we're being sensitive to where the Spirit is leading. Amen. Thank you for that. So if the answer is yes for you, come on, let's go. 
want you to take a moment to fill out in that prayer card and say, I'm in. I, I, I pray, I'm, <laughs> I'm not leading us to a crash, I promise. I promise you that, because I don't think Jesus is, will, will lead us to crash. But I, what I'm really excited about is for the depths that we will all get to experience and explore together with Jesus Christ. And the impact that you are going to have as a result of your own spiritual journey with those around you. The miracles, the healings that are going to take place because of the spirit that's flowing from you to those closest to you. Whether it's your families, whether it's your workplaces, whether it's your friends or your neighborhoods. That is what I'm really excited about. That is what I feel privileged to be a part of, to just witness that. I am excited to see the Spirit of God work miracles in this city because of the calling that we have received out of our decision to follow Jesus. One City Church is here to help people, is, is here to help reach people and help people draw closer to God by practicing the way of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to thank you for this time. And Lord, I, the only thing I can give is just a blessing to everybody here, to our family of St. John the Divine, to our family of One City Church, Lord. May you baptize us with your Holy Spirit and with fire, God. Or would you just fill us? Would you comfort us? Would you guide us? This life is so difficult that it's hard to imagine a life without you. But there are people out there who are dying because you're not in their lives. And that's who we want to reach. Not through lectures, not through teachings, Lord, but through acts of love. Would you send us out? Would you empower us? Would you fill us? Would you commission us today, Lord, by the filling of your spirit to go out and do what you have called us to do, which is to love people? Because that is the mark of a follower of Jesus. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. and We praise you. Amen.